from Cobalt Headquarters in San Francisco, this is Humans of InfoSec, a show about real people, their work, and its impact on the information security industry. My name is Caroline Wong, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, my good friend and colleague, Kim Jones. Kim and I are both on the advisory board for RSA Conference, and we found that we're two of the, shall I say, more out-of-the-box members of the group. Kim has more than 30 years of intelligence, security, and risk management expertise. He is a former chief security officer who has built, operated, and managed information security programs in finance, defense, healthcare, manufacturing, and business outsourcing. He's what I like to call a repeat CISO offender, including roles at Vantive, General Dynamics, eTelecare, and EFC. Kim was the principal architect of the cybersecurity concentration at Arizona State University and is currently a professor of practice at ASU. Kim has a BS in computer science from West Point and a master's degree in information assurance from Norwich University. He's also a CISM and a CISSP. Kim, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me, Caroline. It is my pleasure. Um, so Kim, the first question I wanna ask you to share with our listeners is, how did you get into computer science at West Point? How did you become interested in computer science? <laughs> to be brutally honest with you, it's because I did not have any idea what I would do with a mathematics degree. You know, when I'm in college and you're in the military academy, your career is pretty much laid out for you for the next five years. I know what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be wearing funny green clothes and working for Uncle Sam in some form or fashion. Uh, I did not know whether or not I was going to stay for 20 or 30. The plan initially was to stay for at least 20. And, but I also knew I wanted to have some ability to do something should, you know, you know how it is with the military. You know, Uncle Sam loves me and will use me and takes care of me. And I'm a huge proponent of service. But if anything happens to me, you know, or I'm not able to fight or not be combat ready, you know, there goes my career, regardless of where I am in my career, and I have to have something to do if I'm going to have a family, et cetera. Computers were up and coming. Um, I had known a little bit about them, played with them a little bit in high school, a very little bit in high school. Um, and while I had a good head for math and a math degree was offered, Back in the day when I did not know that mathematics was the foundation of encryption, as well as many other things, I didn't know what I could do other than be a high school teacher with a math degree. So when I started looking around, my bent was toward sciences, and I felt that computer science would give me an opportunity to at least have something to fall back on should I get out. And while I'm in, to at least be able to ride that trend in some form or fashion as computers became more integral to our society as they were beginning to in the mid to late 80s when I was in college. Very cool. So computer science for you was a pretty pragmatic decision. Um, yes. I actually want to back up a little bit in the life of Kim Jones. And I want to know about Kim Jones as a child. 
tell me about tell me about you and math right not every little kid is like i like math um you know was there do you remember like what do you what do you remember liking about math as a, as a kid it made sense to me yeah yeah i was a geek um <laughs> kind of sort of still am um it made sense to me and if i were now in my early 50s to get philosophical about it you know first from a pragmatic standpoint as a kid it made sense back then in the early phases of math that i was doing there was always a right and wrong answer and having something that if you understood the rules and you understood how it worked you could derive a right and wrong answer you know i think that i found it logical it flowed it was appealing uh, if I were to get philosophical from a sociological standpoint, I'm a child of the late 60s and early 70s. And while I grew up in Massachusetts, which was and is still arguably the most liberal state in the union, and very proud of that, by the way, um, you know, we still had our share of racial tension and enmity back when I was growing up as a kid. So, you know, I retreated to books and scholarship. Because like most kids in those situations, you know, books offered some level of escapism. I was and am still a voracious reader. And math for me in terms of logic and reason in schools where, yes, I was dealing with teachers who weren't necessarily in some cases comfortable that the smart kid happened to be a person of color. Um, it's kind of hard to be subjective about what two plus two means so if you understand the rules and the concepts it makes sense and it works and you find it rewarding and you can win for lack of a better term and again that's a philosophical viewpoint of a 53 year old as a kid it's just i get this i understand it it's cool and i like it i appreciate very much uh you sharing that with us and so you go to west point you study CS. What does your transition into security look like? How do you how do you go from okay, pragmatically, it seems like a good idea to study computer science. I'll I'll kind of always have a backup plan. Um, and then and then what about the shift to security? What did that look like for you? Oh, cool. That 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 was an unexpected twist of fate on a few levels. So. I'm a second generation soldier. My daddy was an enlisted soldier, enlisted in 1947. In 1950, he was a prisoner of war in Korea, captured by the North Koreans and Chinese as a buck sergeant. Yes, I'm gonna brag on my late father. Um, he, unlike a lot of other folks, didn't rip off his NCO stripes and then found himself as a young 20-year-old African-American male in command of a hut of 17 other individuals senior to him. After three years through various experiences of torture, et cetera, he brought 15 of them out alive. Uh, that war was the first of my dad's two wars because he did two tours in Vietnam afterwards. It was the first of his three Purple Hearts. My dad was the winner of the Distinguished Service Cross, which for our military brethren is the second highest military honor. The next award would have been the Medal of Honor. My dad did not want me to join the military <laughs> at all. 
my dad joined the military at 17 because a post-depression kid who was infinitely smarter than I will ever be, there weren't a lot of opportunities for him in Philadelphia in the, you know, in the forties. So this was an opportunity for him to find a way to take care of himself, better himself and better his situation. But my dad did it hard through the integration of the military, through being on the front line as an infantryman. And my dad told myself and my brothers and sisters that he had done our family's time, that he had sacrificed so that we could do whatever the hell we wanted to and did not have to sacrifice. So what does number one son decide he wants to do? I want to be a soldier. So, <laughs> so figure that as a parent. You have young kids. Figure that as a parent when you have to go back and eat your words when your kids say, <laughs> okay, I want to do this. So my dad said, if you're going to be a soldier, be an officer. So that's when I started looking at ROTC and the academies. So when I got accepted to the academy, I went in. I was going to blaze the trail, follow my dad's footsteps. I was going airborne, ranger, pathfinder, infantryman, and I was going hard charging. Uh, the summer of 1985, my dad sat me down on our porch, and he asked me not to do something. And to the day he died, it was the only thing he asked me not to do. And he asked me not to go combat arms. He asked me not to be, you know, so I took three years of I'm going this way and had to take a 45 to 90 degree turn. So I started looking at combat support arms. So I went into military intelligence. And my joke is I spent 11 years of my life trying to prove, trying to prove military intelligence is not an oxymoron. Yeah, hopefully did my part. But while I was doing MI work, I actually commanded a counterintelligence detachment over in Europe. And this was in the early 90s. And started asking the question of why are we concerned about things like Coke cans and dead drops and things like you see in spy novels, which do happen when there's this thing called the floppy disk, which I can put a safe worth of classified data in. And for our younger viewers, just Google floppy disk, you'll figure out what it is, and drop it in my cargo pocket and walk away with it. So I started dusting off some of the stuff I learned back in the academy about computers and fledgling networking and coding, et cetera, and started to probe about how we make our automated information systems, as they were called at the time, that are now networked together safer and more secure. So that's how my path in the military just began to go down that way. And a posting at NSA after my command didn't hurt that later on. What an incredible story. You know, I think that, as you mentioned, as a mom with two young kids, I think an awful lot about the relationships between kids and their parents. I think about how I am you know, a creation, uh, both genetically as well as the way they chose to raise me and things of my parents. And, you know, I'm so much the same as them and I'm so much different. And I think that's, that's the same for all of us, you know, and, and I, and I've come to know you a little bit as a person and hearing the story about who your father was to me and like knowing some things about you to me, that just like makes sense. And I, and I appreciate so much that you've shared uh, his story with us as well. 
Well, it's an honor and a privilege from my perspective, but you'll, you probably with young kids remember the day that your mom's words came out of your mouth and it just terrified the Jesus out of you. You know, I, 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 as I get older, I see more of my father in the mirror and I hear more of my father coming out of my mouth and realizing in my fifties, that's not necessarily a bad thing. (laughs) Very cool. So Cam, you're in Europe. You're leading a counterintelligence team. What does your transition to industry look like? My transition to industry is actually post-Europe. I was actually at NSA at the time. Uh, I avoided a lot, not by choice, by circumstance. I avoided a lot of the heavy-duty uh, the heavy-duty shooting that was going on at the time, though did see some of my share. Um, but I was in NSA, and I was I went to Bosnia in the early days of Bosnia. And some stuff happened over there where uh, I actually ended up looking myself in the mirror and saying that if things had gone differently, my wife would be a widow and my three-year-old son would never see me again. And I had someone say to me a long time ago that the secret to success for anyone who does what we do is to believe you're indestructible categorically while categorically knowing that you're not. And if you ever one of those two things fail, that's when you get yourself killed. And I found myself in the situation where one of those two things were failing and I did not want to get myself killed. So I stepped away. I was actually on the promotion list. I stepped away from promotion and started looking for work in the civilian sector. And I got to tell you, uh, I had no idea what work was out there. And I was one of those who, how do I put this? I have this problem that I believe in right, wrong, and good and evil. And when you do a lot of the stuff that I used to do, you see a lot of that. And I don't find myself, I hope I'm not cynical. I don't think I'm cynical. But I remember leaving the military. There was nothing that appealed to me in the civilian sector because there was not that sense of unity of purpose there was not a sense of nobility of mission and everything seemed to be about making money and screwing over people to help make money. So I was not exactly thrilled as I made this transition, but, you know, but I'm a computer science major working in DC with the top secret clearance. So I spent some time becoming a consultant. Uh, In my early days, I worked for a couple of big four firms one of those firms that I worked for early on, I describe as this is where I spent eight months learning what I was not willing to do to make money. And it proved out the case and just solidified my opinion of the civilian sector. I then went on to different jobs with more like-minded individuals doing, you know, doing better work and doing more meaningful things. I left consulting in late 2002 because I found that I was on the road more than what I was deploying uh, when I was in the military. And if I'm going to be a civilian, why the hell am I not spending more time with my wife and kid? So I went looking for in-house jobs 
and through an interesting uh, series of circumstances, I started looking for work first in Arizona, which I grew up five miles from the beach and fell in love with the high desert. And my wife grew up in Alaska. This is why she, you know, I'm finding a person who will put up with you, particularly someone who put up with me is a great thing. And we've been married 27 years and I moved in Alaska and into the desert and she came willingly. And I went looking for work in-house and about the time where I said, I'm going to take a leap of faith and I'm going to either find work within the next 90 days or just move out to Arizona, sleep on a French couch, uh, friend's couch, send money until I find the job. The job that was my first CISO gig actually posted on monster.com. So I am a monster.com success story. I got my first gig on monster.com, started my first role as a CISO on 27 January 2003, out here working for EFD Funds Corporation and uh, helping build and move their program forward. So that's the story. Incredible. Kim, this is, I just can't even tell you how pleased I am to have you on the podcast because it is like one phenomenal story after another. I also really like that you describe your first gig as a CISO gig, uh, which is just, it's just, it's just plain badass. There's no other way to say it. Kim, I'm getting to know you. You are a guy with a sense of right and wrong. You are a guy who wants to have a mission and a purpose. You are a guy who recognizes the value of staying alive physically. Um, what do you like most about the information security industry? And what do you like least about the information security industry? Both great questions. Uh, most would be two things. I, I wish I could narrow it down to one, but it's truly two for me. I, I mentioned this uh, concept of nobility of purpose. You know, there's a reason I get up in the morning to do certain things. And InfoSec has the closest thing I have found out here, short of being, you know, short of being a trauma surgeon or working in medicine and, you know, or you know, police and fire, obviously. Yeah, they do. I, I say they do real work <laughs> and all God bless them. God love them. They all do real work. But in business, it's the closest thing I could find that has, in my mind, that uh, nobility of purpose. I, uh, I was once asked the question, I think I blogged on it once, you know, why do you do what you do? And I was asked that question when I was sitting in the chair. I think it was Advantage. And my first reflex response was single mom at Walmart. And the person looked at me and I said, okay, think about this for a second. You got your single mom who's working three jobs. She's got two or three kids. She's working hard to stay on the right side of poverty. The kids may not have all the new stuff, but and their clothes may not be new, but they're clean, they're cared for, they're well-fed, they have dignity, they have pride, and she's doing everything she can to make sure that they have a good experience. It's shopping day. You know, they're in Walmart. She's clipped her coupons. She's saved accordingly. She's planned accordingly and even has a little money left over to buy the kids treats. She gets up to the counter and she swipes her card and her card is declined. And it's declined either because some idiot got into my systems and shut down the ability for Walmart to process 
or worse, some idiot got into my systems and stole her money. And I get up every day, shoulder to shoulder, with some of the best people in the world to uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. And for me, that's a worthwhile purpose. And there's some nobility of purpose in that. So for me, that's the first thing. The second thing for me as well is despite the fact that we are still struggling not only with staffing but diversity challenges and that's a whole other topic we can go into that later you and i have gone into it in the past i genuinely and sincerely believe that infosec is the closest thing to a true meritocracy that exists you know you me our peers we don't give a damn about race creed color sexual choice sexual preference religion we don't care our basic questions are do you like hard work are you passionate for the work do you like whipping up on the bad guys if the answers are yes to those three great pick up a sword and shield come run with me i can teach you the rest so for me that the it's truly a the ability for anyone who meets those three criteria to succeed because we don't have the time as an industry or profession to mess with any of that other political personal gobbledygook that goes on in the world we ain't got the time we got too much stuff to do so those things for me are some of the best of what infosec has to offer some of the worst um I'll go back into, despite being a meritocracy, we our, our diversity numbers suck. And I don't know if they suck because we're not catching people early on enough. We haven't expressed ourselves enough uh, in terms of the value proposition that we bring or the opportunities that exist. But we are still, and I use this term regularly, you know, despite being a meritocracy, we are still a profession that is decidedly pale, male, and stale. And I am too of those three criteria. You know, we are not going to survive unless we open up these opportunities. And this is not fair, not open up these opportunities. You know, make the melting pot that is this nation and this world understand that these opportunities exist because they truly, truly do. And the fact that we have to step back and address this as a thing, for lack of a better term, tells me that somewhere along the line we failed. And I hate failure. And as a profession and as an industry, we have to fix that. Yeah, there are so many things going through my head right now. One of them is that we recently put together this AppSec ABCs book, and I just want to get it into hands of children everywhere. I think you and I are very, they're both very passionate about the talent um, the talent shortage, you know, creating opportunities for folks. And, and a lot of that really does mean, I think, changing the stories that that young people and that children hear. Um, and that, that really is one of the big goals of this podcast is to, is to share these stories. Kim, tell me about your work as a professor and about your work creating the certification in cybersecurity at ASU. Why did you decide to do that? Uh, and what has that been like? 
So a couple of things, and this is going to dovetail along the conversation we've just had and your talk about diversity and talent. So first, for clarity, it is not a certification, it is a concentration, which means it rides under another degree within the environment. Um, that I'm sorry, I'm an academician as well, so there is a difference, I got to point that out. <laughs> but when I, actually when I was leaving Vantive, I was tired of commuting to Cincinnati, Ohio from Phoenix, Arizona on a regular basis. Go figure. Um, when I left Vantive and started looking for other work, I was in a position where there were other opportunities uh, in front of me, other CISO opportunities, but other opportunities to do some different things. Uh, Arizona State had approached a colleague of mine, a dear friend of mine, and said, we really want to figure out how we make cybersecurity better and how we embrace the talent issues with cyber. And I sat down with ASU and said, here is my biggest challenge. As a CISO, I either get great geeks, and, I, and geek is a term of endearment for me, because I am one, who understand the tech, you know, if I lock them in a room, chef pizza on the door, will solve any coding problem that you have. But in general, suck at risk management, suck at organizational skills, suck at communication, suck at compliance. That's one category. Or I get great business and compliance and assurance wonks, usually out of our business schools, who are great at compliance, reasonably okay at risk, understand the frameworks, uh, do not understand the tech in any breadth or depth to offer any sort of meaningful insight into how I solve the problem and suck at communication, suck at organizational skills, and suck at that translation. And then I mentioned they all suck at communication and organizational skills. And I have yet to find or had yet to find a program that truly melded both of those. So we've got great methods to create great technologists who, and even methods outside of four-year degrees, who can solve our entry-level problems. Or I get great people who are great at compliance who aren't considered technical enough and have to you know, figure out how they augment the technology. But what I really need is I need that renaissance person. You know, my job, your job, our job is equal parts tech. I tell people, you know, we're, we're like a good bartender or a priest confessor, et cetera. We hit the problems of the world laid at our feet, and we're given a roll of duct tape, a lot of chewing gum, and some baling wire, and we're asked to solve and make it work. And not only that, make it, make it look easy. And for that, outside of the box thinking is normal. You know, in fact, the box doesn't exist. Uh, we have to understand if the bad guy can think about it, or some, if I can think about it, there's someone like a bad guy who's probably trying to do it, but that doesn't mean I should drop everything and my, my hair is on fire to fix it. And I'm running into kids coming into this profession who are being very, very myopic regarding the problem on one side or another. So what I wanted to do was to put together a program that allowed us to be truly interdisciplinary and bring in the best of all worlds. I wanted someone who had the technical depth to hang with the geeks and engineers, yet understood what risk is and what compliance is and what governance is, and have the ability to understand how to move within an organization and how to communicate at all levels. So I, I, ASU, 
I told them that's what was needed and said, hey, this is what I think if you're serious about it. And I'm going to go off and get a job. And if you need me, I'll come work for coffee or and fill up a whiteboard and help you. And the dean of the college I was in, uh, talking to said, we are we like your concept. We think it fits with the interdisciplinary approach that ASU likes to take. Would you be interested in putting it together? And I was at a place in my life where I could afford to uh, step out of the rat race for a bit and do that. So that's what I did. But for me, this was hopefully a mechanism to serve the community and to meet a need that I did not and still do not see lots of other programs designed to build cyber talent addressing. We tend to still look at that talent as very myopic and steam piped. And yeah, you can get a job at an entry level for a whole lot of money looking at it that way. Your ability to grow and mature in the profession, as you well know, will be limited or will be slowed unless you embrace these other things fairly quickly. And I wanted to build a program where we did that. Uh, I think we're looking right now, the program went live April of last year, and we had some people migrating. So this fall will be our first full year of having people come in as freshmen into the program. And I believe we're looking at 60 or 65 students coming in as freshmen this coming fall uh, for this concentration. So it's been a good ride. That's incredible. Tim, I am sad to say that we are approaching the end of our 30-minute podcast. I have another question for you. Okay. And I want to know, the woman that you spoke about who inspires you to do the work that you do, the single mom at Walmart, say you meet her daughter several years from now. Her little girl has grown up and is 16 years old. What advice do you give to that girl? For life or in cyber? Actually, that's not fair. You asked the question in general. I'm going to answer the question in general. What advice do I give that young lady? Um, uh, what I would tell them, I hope, would be similar to what I told my son, uh, which is similar to what my dad told me. And it amounts to the end message being that you can do anything that you want to do. And whenever I would feel roadblocked or perplexed, my dad would find the door and say, you know, you see that door over there, son? There are a million and one ways to get through that door. You just have to choose the way that makes the best sense for you. And it taught me to not look at problems or obstacles but to figure out what solution uh, I was in, what I was willing to sacrifice and do to achieve that solution. You know, I told my son, I just want him to be happy and I don't care what he does. And that's still true. He's about to turn 25 in a couple of weeks. Hi, Scott. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and, and that's still true. For me, that's the most important thing. But a lot of what I hope my ability to do that centered around was I've always taken the approach that while I would rail at injustice and rail at unfairness and do everything in my power to fight it, my starting position 
if I'm going to survive and succeed is that it's not good, bad, right, or wrong. It is. And while I am fighting against it, railing against it, what the hell am I going to do to first survive and then thrive? And if I can adopt that mindset, then I look at the world not as a problem, not as an obstacle, but this is just something else. This is just another day. It's Tuesday. Now I have to figure out how to put one foot in front of the other to do that. Uh, my dad teaching me that, teaching my brothers that, my sister that, I think is what has allowed us to survive and thrive in the face of adversity. And I can't tell that 16-year-old girl that she won't face adversity. But I can tell her that if she remembers that there are a million one ways to get through the door and doesn't focus on the adversity but focuses on the solution, she will thrive. It's the best I can do. Awesome. Kim, thank you so, so much. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you for your words of wisdom. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's been my honor and privilege. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Humans of InfoSec is brought to you by Cobalt, a pen testing as a service company. You can find us on Twitter at Humans of InfoSec.